As Canadians look to challenges of affordability, increased inflation, as well as increased interest rates, and the challenge of, challenges of our economy in 2023 and as we look to 2024, today we want to talk about the state of Canada's economy, as well as other related issues. And with me here today to talk about that is the Honourable Joe Oliver, the former Federal Finance Minister, as well as former Minister of Natural Resources. Welcome, Joe. Well, thank you very much for having me. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Well, Joe, I'm, I'm delighted to have you and uh, very excited about the opportunity to not only reflect about our economy, but also uh, a number of interrelated issues. There's certainly a lot of moving parts these days, and um, I certainly enjoy uh, reading a number of your columns about so many things about the state of affairs in Canada, so we'll pick up on some of those themes as well. But I did want to talk a little bit about a fairly recent testimony from um, another former uh, prominent federal leader. And that, of course, was none other than uh, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, David Dodge. And he was uh, giving testimony uh, to a federal finance um, committee. And he, I think it was a very powerful testimony. I did have a chance to, to listen to it. And basically, he said, Canadians face a terrible job of choosing between higher taxes and fewer services due to mounting debt. He testified before the committee and he went on to say, governments cannot borrow their way out of these difficult choices. Your thoughts? Well, that's, that's certainly true. And that's been a, a frustration of mine uh, since uh, 2015 when the, the Liberal government uh, took over. Uh, you know, I delivered uh, the last balanced budget indeed uh, yes we've seen and um, that wasn't done uh, because of uh, desire for ideological purity it was done because uh, the prime minister believed and, and I believed and still do uh, that fiscal prudence is important for our country and it serves the interests of, of Canadians what, what we've had uh, since then is the antithesis of uh, fiscal prudence. What we've had is profligacy, and it was forecast, uh, in fact, and now we're, we're dealing with some of the consequences of it. You may recall that prior to the, uh, to the 2015 election, the then leader of the uh, third party, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, said that um, he would... Uh, uh, he, he didn't think there was a, a particular problem about budgetary balance. In fact, uh, budgets balanced themselves. Oh, yes, I did recall struck, that. Struck people as, as uh, an inane comment uh, that, that uh, really showed a, a lack of understanding of basic uh, e economics. But it was a, a warning uh, to us and... Uh, uh, forewarned uh, wasn't uh, forearmed in, in, in this case. Then uh, during the um, during the election campaign, he said, "Well, um, 
you know, he derided a bit the, the conservative, uh, what he, he felt was an obsession on, on balanced budgets. And he said he would have a modest uh, deficit in the first three years of, of $10 billion annually. Mm-hmm. $10 billion didn't seem particularly modest, although in the current circumstances, it, it does for the wrong reasons. And then in the fourth year, uh, the budget uh, would be balanced. That was 2019-2020. Uh, well, um, none of that, of course, happened. What you had uh, was a series of escalating uh, deficits. Uh, this year, it's going to be $40 billion, and there is no uh, balance uh, in sight. And the, the, um, uh, the, the other measure, I guess, that the government had talked about uh, f- for a number of years, which was the, uh, the, the, the debt-to-GDP ratio uh, as a target has also uh, been, been abandoned. Mm-hmm. And the result of, of that uh, spending, which, by the way, uh, exceeded the total spending of all the prime ministers that preceded him. Sorry, can you repeat that again, uh, Joel? That is the debt, the the debt that was incurred by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau exceeded the total debt produced by all the previous prime ministers since Confederation. Yeah. It, it's it's hard, it's really hard to conceptualize that. But but that's the context, though, Joel, isn't it? That we have a situation where really a number of years ago, you were tabling a balanced budget, and now we've racked up more debt than all previous governments combined. And that's the context that we're in, but also where the former governor of the Bank of Canada, Canada, uh, uh, David Dodge, who you know so well, weighs in and says, hey, we've got a, we've got a very serious problem here. Right. So this is not a partisan issue. No, absolutely not. This is an issue of, of Canada's national interest. And yeah. the, the debt has has increased to the point where it's going to reach, I think, one point one point two trillion dollars this year. Wow. And the interest on the debt will be about forty four billion dollars, which is, interestingly enough, greater than this year's deficit. In other words, it accounts for all the, the deficit and more. And of course, with with high interest rates and the possibility of interest rates going higher, and the deficit continuing, that interest obligation will continue to grow. So wow. this is this is where we we get you know into an understanding of the problem. It it means that um, rather than money going to social programs, um, to to uh, infrastructure, uh, to healthcare and education, mm-hmm. of course, uh, um, uh, it 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 actually will have to go to something which won't help Canadians in any way. Right, yeah. And that is the repayment of, of the interest on, on the debt. But we have no choice. We have to, we have to uh, discharge our, our obligations. Exactly. So it, it means that, that the growth will be slower um, and uh, taxes will be higher. And uh, the average... Um, um, level of, of prosperity um, will be will be lower. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a while ago, um, the OECD did an examination, an analysis of all the wealthy countries in, in the world, the, the members of the OECD, of which there are 38. And it concluded 
during the next 20 years and 20 years following that. In other words, a 40-year period. Um, the, the growth rate of GDP per capita, which is a measure of individual prosperity, that is the, the size of the economy divided by the number of people. In other words, how much, how much of the economy um, does each person have? That, and that measure of prosperity um, was, was going to grow less in Canada than every other developed country in the world. We were going to come last. So, Joe, what you're saying, I, I, and I recall that, that analysis well, is that the um, OECD, the uh, organization that, that kind of looks at the leading um, developed nations in the world, is looking at Canada at the bottom. Is that what you're saying in terms of anticipated growth exactly. going forward because of these, these bad public policy decisions? So this is really going to impact Canadians. Absolutely, and, and let me let me give you let me give you an example of of of, of how that that's going to impact us, and we can we can we can talk about it. Um, you know, in 1948, two countries became independent, countries that faced an existential threat from the outside and had to spend a great deal of of, of uh, money on their military. Two countries that started off very poor. They were. Israel and South Korea. Yes. And the OECD is projecting that both those countries will have higher GDP per capita at some point in the next 20 or so years than Canada. Well, good for them, but shame on us. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, Australia is a country two thirds the size of, of Canada. And a while ago, it's become a wealthier country in terms of GDP per capita. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the question is, why is that? And one of the one of the central problems is productivity, because there, there are two ways in which you grow. One is by increasing the size of the workforce. And the other is by being more productive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we have a. a a bit of a demographic challenge because the population is is getting older we can partially address that through immigration and the government's focused a lot on on immigration and their consequences to that some of it negative uh, in in terms of the pressure on on housing um but but you can't solve the whole problem uh with with immigration um so you have to focus also on productivity and one of the ways in which productivity increases is by spending more or investing more capital in plant and equipment so workers can become more efficient. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we have a capital flight problem, the opposite of what, what we need. Capital uh, in this country is leaving and capital from outside the country isn't coming in at the same rate it is in other countries. Exactly. And what what yeah. we were, you know, when we compare ourselves to the United States, we see that that problem in in spades. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we just had a, a downturn of uh, I think zero point two percent in the last quarter, and if you have another quarter downturn, you're you're technically yeah. in a recession. You're well, right the, the U.S. Uh, had you know pretty pretty good growth, 
they, they've got a huge uh, debt problem mm -hmm. as well, but they have a more robust and more productive economy. Yeah. And so that's one of the critical problems that, that we have to address. Really How do you increase productivity? And, you know, there's some ideas about about doing that. So, so we really have, I don't know, I, I, in recent memory, I can't recall this, but it's almost like we have a lot of very important moving parts that Canadians need to be aware of. We've got declining productivity. In fact, we basically will lose kind of a decade of, of, of growth here. So we'll be back to 2014 numbers, as, as if it's, you know, memory serves me correctly. But what you're benchmarking is Canada's performance is really, really mediocre. So we're in a point where our standard of living, do you, do you see that declining over the next decade then? If, if we, like a lot of these decisions are setting the foundation for going forward. So when we look to our kids and our grandkids, this is really going to impact their standard of living over time, isn't it, if we continue on this trajectory? Yeah, I think we have to be careful. I'm not predicting a decline necessarily. Hopefully, that, that would be that would be disastrous. But uh, what I'm predicting is extremely insipid growth. I mean, mm -hmm. we should, you know, and let, if you have a decline, a continuing decline, then you're in a recession or a depression. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, uh, I'm not to predicting a, a depression, certainly. There may well be, and there probably will be, an economic downturn. And right now, we're, we're, you know, in the last quarter, we experienced that. But what we're talking about is, is, is flat or very slow growth. And in the last five years or so, for a lot of people, there's been no growth in GDP per capita. In other words, people are standing still. They're just not getting getting any any wealthier. The country is getting a bit bigger, and and um, Christia Freeland, uh, the deputy prime minister and, and minister of, uh, of of finance, uh, was boasting about our our better growth rate. Well, that was about a month before uh, our growth rate disappeared mm -hmm. and went negative. Right. But but what she didn't talk about was GDP per capita, which is how. Uh, Canadians as individuals are faring, and that's what that's what they know about. They don't they don't know what the the, the, the macro figures are. Mm -hmm. They know how they themselves are doing, and they're not doing well, particularly blue collar workers. Exactly. Yeah. No. So it's it's a it's a, a great concern to people as Canadians. They go through their daily lives, and I hear this all the time from people. It's just that much more difficult. To decide what you're going to do. Another stat that I think I found very powerful, it came out just this last week, is essentially the Canadians um, per capita income, uh, GDP, is uh, productivity-wise, is, is about $18,000 less than the average in the United States. So when you look at $18,000, that's not insignificant, isn't it, Joel? I mean, in terms of lifestyle right. decisions, like we often think that we would be kind of near parity with the United States, maybe a little bit lower. But that $18,000 per capita uh, is was a real eye-opener for me, at least. There was a point during, um, during the time I was in government that uh, we were actually ahead of the Americans. So there's been quite a decline um, since uh, 2015. I mean, we're, we're, we're slowly growing, but... In GDP per capita, it's just been been flat or, or very, very weak. And we're talking about 
according to the OECD, a growth in GDP per capita over the next 20 years of 0.7%, wow. followed by 0.8% for the subsequent 20 years. So basically, over the next 40 years, there's going to be extremely low growth in, in personal prosperity. And uh, that's, that's a very sad um, thing to contemplate. And frankly, uh, people should be very worried about it and, and, and sort of outraged by it. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to do better. Yeah. And there are ways there are ways to do better, but we we need more capital investment. And, and then so the question is, well, how do you get that? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the ways uh, you, there's a few ways of doing it. One is uh, to reduce corporate taxes uh, to to attract capital uh, because there's a greater chance of, of, of turning a profit. And, and people invest in in jurisdictions where they can earn a profit. And exactly. why, why wouldn't they do that? The other, the other issue is to reduce uh, red tape and, and excessive and intrusive regulation. Uh, another critical area is, is uh, to develop our natural resources, and that's a whole other subject. But, but we have, we have uh, paid a huge price mm -hmm. uh, for, for the government's uh, climate obsession. Indeed. Well, you've you've written uh, quite extensively about that. Um, those whole quote green policies are really not a green dream, but rather a green nightmare. So, the mm -hmm. war on affordable energy, on Canadian oil and gas, uh, seems bizarre to me, as we know that part of our economic history and success has been affordable energy, and we've had a diversified variety or sources of, of energy in Canada, whether it's nuclear to hydro, um, as well as Canadian oil and gas. And yet this federal government has a war on energy. So what's going on there? Help us explain from your perspective why this is such a, uh, a terrible policy that will really impact Canadians. Well, I'll, I'll talk about that as to why they're doing it. That's a little more okay. mysterious and we, we can we can get into that as well. But you know, the energy sector represents about 10% of the uh, Canadian economy, and it accounts for, um, uh, you know, I think it's 15 billion in, in exports and, it, it, and, and, and tens of billions of dollars in, in revenue uh, to governments. Um, we have the, um, uh, and it depends on the year, but, but the, the fourth uh, largest um, proven oil reserves in the world and the fifth largest proven natural gas uh, reserves. We, we, we're, we're blessed with enormous mm -hmm. natural resources. And unfortunately, uh, we can't export any of those resources because to, to overseas markets because we don't have any pipelines to Tidewater and we literally can't deliver. So where we're exporting now is to the United States um, and uh, that's fine, except that there's a huge uh, discount on the price that the Americans pay to what the international price is. And so uh, we're, we're basically subsidizing uh, the Americans. I think this is kind of a dirty secret, quite frankly, in Canada. A lot of Canadians don't realize the point that you're making. You're saying that because we export our oil and gas to really primarily only one customer, namely the United States, we don't get full market price. So the price that we do get 
is is a lower percentage. And, and it's a bit of a dynamic number based on the market. But what kind of discount are we talking about every every uh, year? Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm sorry, I don't have that, yeah. that uh, n- number. Uh, so the point is that we have this discount that's worth a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars every year that Canadians leave on the table because we can't get those pipelines done to serve other markets like Japan and Germany, like those leaders were here in Canada, and that yet our prime minister said there's no business case to export, what was it, LNG and all the rest uh, to those countries. I mean, you were the former uh, uh, minister, not only of finance, but also former minister of natural resources. I mean, that's absurd, isn't it? Surely we have a business case to export. Well, of course. You see, you know, firstly, we're suffering from this discount to the U.S. market, but second, um, we can't sell as much as we, we have the resources to sell uh, because uh, we can't access these other markets. So it's both a question of discount and a question of volume. And um, look, I'll tell you a, a, a story that um, I think was indicative. Uh, I was uh, in Beijing. I'd been there a number of times, and I, I had an opportunity to... Uh, to meet with the president of, of China, Xi Jinping, when uh, the governor general, David Johnson, was was in town and, mm-hmm. and he had an audience. And um, normally only leaders, uh, you know, have an opportunity to talk to, to the president, which is understandable. Um, but in this case, because the governor general uh, can't discuss politics, when the subject moved to natural resources, he looked to me and and, and I engaged in that conversation. And the bottom line was I had been pushing a concept that Xi Jinping actually uh, agreed with, which is that there's a strategic complementarity between our two countries. We need more markets for our resources, and they need more diversification of their sources of supply mm. because they don't want to buy it all from a small number of companies that might be politically stable. So there was a, an opportunity there, a golden opportunity, um, which might even have made our relationship a little less asymmetrical. But in any case, it all came to naught because literally we couldn't deliver. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see um, happening uh, when, when, uh, uh, when Schultz arrived from Germany and basically begged uh, uh, begged the prime minister for, for some of our, our, our gas. And then, uh, you know, the Japanese want the gas and the British uh, do. And of course, um, I mean, Europeans generally are, are being uh, squeezed uh, by, by the Putin regime uh, as part of his, uh, his, I guess, retaliation for their opposition to his, um, his, his attack on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, they were facing an energy crisis. Had we had the opportunity to to deliver, we could have helped our allies and made a fortune doing it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, we uh, were totally useless. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, in terms of the sacrifice to our GDP, to jobs, mm-hmm. to energy security, to national unity and to uh, having a bigger role internationally this is a, this is this is a, actually it's a national tragedy it it really is a national tragedy cuz it it's 
really an impact then on ultimately our quality of life as Canadians because that money feeds, as you said, the jobs and, and the opportunities for Canadians. And interesting enough, um, Joe, I would, I would say that that also is a tragedy for our environment if you think that cleaner energy is better. We know well that even if Canada ended all its industrial activity, it wouldn't make a whit in terms of ending, ending any concern about climate change using their models, by the way, because India and China are uh, full speed ahead when it comes to the development of their, their energy sector. So even ending Canada's economic uh, uh, economy period wouldn't make a difference. So exporting that Canadian energy to places all around the world, including China, would actually help improve the quality of energy that they're using, wouldn't it? Well, yes, there's two aspects to that. One is that if we were to export more gas and oil uh, to Asia, um, it would substitute for coal, mm -hmm. which is higher emitting. Exactly. So that net global basis, we by developing and exporting our gas to, to Asia, we would be reducing net global emissions, which is, I thought, what, uh, what environmentalists wanted to see happen. And the other issue that you raised, of course, was, was uh, we represent a, a very small proportion of global emissions, about 1.5%. So if we went back to the Stone Age, it would have no meaningful impact on global emissions and zero impact mm -hmm. on uh, temperatures. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what we're doing this as a kind of a gesture, a, a, you know, we're doing it. I mean, the only possible justification for all this self-harm is that, well, we have a, an obligation uh, to to do our part. Mm -hmm. Well, um other countries aren't doing their part. Right. Uh, China uh, is 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 building more coal-fired plants than the rest of the world combined. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, and and India just said uh, sent a warning prior to to a meeting there. Um, Narendra Modi said, um, uh, "Don't lecture India about your your climate obsessions." So the, these, these countries have no intention of sacrificing their economy and undermining their ability to bring uh, people out of abject poverty. They're just not going to do yeah, it, and I understand exactly. why. Yeah. So Canada is increasingly isolated, actually, mm -hmm. because Europe uh, is, is starting to back off. I, I think that's a, a powerful summation, uh, Joe, because on the international stage, Canada is not an island, and yet we are increasingly isolated. And we're forfeiting opportunity after opportunity to develop our natural resources in a responsible way, in a way that um, uh, really allows us to have incredible opportunities, and it's ethically produced. And uh, so that, that for me is, is uh, as, as you're alluding to, really quite a national tragedy. And actually, we could be a shining light in terms of helping uh, other countries move forward with their energy needs in a, in a way that's both ethical and responsible for the environment. But for some reason, they're on an ideological um, one-track yeah. show here that, that it's hard to, to totally understand. Well, you know, one other aspect of it I'd like to mention is the fact that these negative policies disproportionately hurt poor people. 
They hurt poorer people in our in wealthier countries, and they hurt poor countries. Um, so uh, you know we're we're not doing the ethical thing. Surely we would look at this and say, "Wow, they're implementing the so-called just transition in Canada. It's going to do irreparable harm." to the oil and gas industry, let alone the rest of the country. Because if you don't have affordable oil and gas industry, it all cascades down to manufacturing, mining, forestry, just about anything that moves in our economy then is going to be undermined significantly. I mean, we know, we know this to be true. So why are the politicians pushing those policies when they know it's going to do irreparable harm to Canadians? That's my question. Yeah, well, some of them may actually be, be believers. They all say they are. Okay. Um, but, the, but, you know, what, what, we've, what we've seen is the, you know, the left wing, um, who are very focused on, on uh, big government uh, um, mm -hmm. intrusion uh, at the top, um, uh, you know, less, much less concern about personal agency, uh, feeling the government is the solution for everything and, and government expenditures can... can solve any problem real or imagined um they they suffered a big blow uh, with the uh, collapse of the soviet union and uh were looking for a cause and then uh, the environmental movement came along and they grabbed on it because because here here was an opportunity uh, to to uh take their their ideology of of uh, big uh, big government uh small people and um and, and create a, a kind of a moral imperative. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, they use fear and they use constant propaganda, starting with children. I mean, they, they've terrorized our kids. Yeah. And uh, they, they've, they've captured, uh, you know, by, by constant repetition over decades, they, they've, they've captured the, the belief of, of, of a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Canadians or, or people in, in, in the Western world um, who aren't uh, expert, uh, aren't science mm -hmm. uh, scientists, and uh, you know are constantly told, "Well, all the scientists agree with this, so uh, uh, you know how how can how how can you question it?" Yeah. Well, of course, all the scientists don't agree with it. Most uh, do, but uh, you got to understand that uh, for a scientist to take an opposite view um, is career-ending. Mm -hmm. uh, it also means no no ability to to uh, get um, get funding uh, yeah. for their project. It's funding so they have exactly. To, they have to uh, uh, you know talk. They have to talk about uh, how their project is going to advance uh, the um, the conventional dialogue. That's mm -hmm. why you see a lot of the people who are um, who are opposed tend to be a bit older or mm -hmm. not in academia mm -hmm. because they can't be hurt. And so yeah. Clauser um, spoke out because, um, you know, well, what can they do to him? Well, exactly. they can vilify him. In mm -hmm. fact, he was, um, but, the, but you know, they can't destroy his career. He was supposed to speak, uh, I believe it, it was before the IMF, and um, he was scheduled. And then someone, you know, looked at it and uh, they canceled him. Yeah. They canceled yeah. his speech. They didn't want to hear they were afraid. I, you mm -hmm. could, you have to assume they were afraid to hear mm -hmm. from a prominent scientist a message that went in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. They will not tolerate that. I mean, the, the 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 New York Times will not publish any story.
that goes against the conventional narrative. Yeah. And I, and I know that when, um, well, I know it's a matter of policy, but I first encountered it when I was Minister of Natural Resources and the, the um, uh, New York Times wrote a scathing and inaccurate uh, attack on the oil sands. Well, the oil sands are in Canada, they're in, they're in Alberta. And so I wrote a, a reply, you know, measured, calm, factual, and I sent it in and I thought it would be it would be published because after all, I was the minister mm-hmm. in the country uh, where the oil signs are located that mm-hmm. they had vilified and they wouldn't publish it. Wow. No, they it, didn't it, want to hear. I told the story to the uh, uh, to, to the uh, Calgary Herald and uh, they got all excited about it. They published my my article. They did, you know, they uh, uh, they wrote about the story. But, you know, there I was preaching to the converted. Yeah. But I, but I, I find that story interesting because, um, Joe, you, you, you probably know this, but a lot of Canadians don't, that there's a whole network across the media, including the weather channels of all things, that agree that we'll stick to this narrative about climate change being an existential threat. So this is, this is not about journalism. This is not about reporting. Um, and this is the contradiction. If you are a scientist, by nature, you are open-minded to healthy debate and discussion regarding evidence, and you follow that very carefully. But that's not what we're doing. So that that should raise any sensible red flag to any Canadian that you're being manipulated, especially when they introduce fear. And Al Gore, of course, makes all these 10 predictions. Not not uh, any of them have, have uh, turned out, including the end of the earth. So, you know, this is the situation that we're in. Um, So I did want to reflect a little bit more then about our issues of the state of the economy relative to debt, because you powerfully outlined how it it seems like this current federal government, among so many others, really don't have any kind of sensible um, safeguards or curbs, dare we say, if we use the driving analogy, to kind of guide our fiscal uh, decision making in our country. And you know from experience that as a country goes into a difficult spot, uh, not just a country can get into a downward spiral as interest rates get up, but so can individuals. So can you help explain to us what's going to happen as interest rates continue to go up and our nation faces those higher interest rates? How is that going to impact our nation? Well, the concern, of course, is that uh, the average Canadian is quite indebted, particularly uh, in, in terms of their their home mortgages, and uh, uh, we have a much higher proportion of um, of floating uh, rate mortgages than in in the United States. So it hits those people immediately. So, of course, it'll happen at a time when housing prices go down, so they can be confronting a uh, a uh, a loss, and then at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, they could end up owing uh, more than the house is worth. Now, we're not at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's what, what happened in, in Japan. Um, and there you can't walk away from your mortgage. So people have been essentially slaves to their homes for, you know, for decades. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really a, a very, very sad situation. We're not, we're not quite there yet, but there is, there is a concern and there's a concern uh, directed at the banks, which is why they're trading at a lower price now, that there are going to be losses. 
that the mm -hmm. banks are going to incur because companies and individuals are not going to be able to cope with the higher interest rate. So that's what uh, uh, what is worrying uh, what is worrying the market. And um, the 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 Bank of Canada is 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 sort of in this delicate uh, situation. I mean, they, they have a single mandate, which is to look at inflation. Mm -hmm. And the governor, Tiff Macklem, has said that's what he intends to do. Um, well, as long as, as inflation stays higher than the range of 1% to 3% and the target of 2%, uh, he's going to be inclined uh, to, to maybe continue to raise rates and certainly exactly. not lower them. Yeah. So, and he understands, <coughs> of course, that if he continues to do that, he he will drive the country into a recession. Virtually every recession is mm -hmm. is is the result of of bank uh, tightening. So Indeed. that's that's the, the the negative side. Others feel well. Yes, we could have a downturn, but it's 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 likely to be a soft landing, and that's yeah. what we don't know at this point. And let's hope it is. But if we look at history, and I know you're a student of history as well, we look at the 2008 Great Recession, we reflect on the period uh, coming out of um, uh, the 90s when, um, uh, in particular, the uh, Chrétien government made some very difficult choices. You've made difficult choices as a finance minister as well. Are there signs that Canada is getting in that zone of a tipping point where the government just can't keep spending out the money, the deficits, and racking up the debt as those interest rates rise. Where are the signs, if you were finance minister today, that you'd have to start cutting and making some difficult decisions here? Because if you don't, you know what it's like. It, it's just going to be all interest charges, and then it's going to squeeze out everything else, including health care and education and everything else. Well, we're there. You know, we can't. This this imprudence can't continue indefinitely. I mean, the fiscal profligacy. You you can't borrow your way to prosperity. And you know, the 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 Krejcian government discovered that in in the 1990s. There was an article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, calling the 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 Canadian dollar the northern peso. Indeed. Yeah. You, you know, they, they realized that um, they're, they're, uh, the bond rating services were, were, were reducing the credit rating. And we could have a, a crisis where uh, the country couldn't, uh, couldn't continue to borrow. So they, uh, you know, confronted with that. Uh, they started tightening up. Um, uh, they, they sent less to the provinces. Mm -hmm. But do you, think, do you think we're at that point now where you're going to start seeing quite, that? We're quite there, but we're... we're you know we're at a point where we're hurting, and uh, it it can't go on. And even even this government is starting at least not to do anything, but to pretend to do something. You know, so so you you have. So, so, so uh, what what do you mean by that? Pretend to do something. Well, uh, here here's the, the the best example of that pretense is is Anita Anand, uh, who is uh, the uh, the president of the Treasury Board. Um, was given the assignment of finding, I think it's $15.4 billion in oh, yes. savings. Yes, okay. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, yeah. but let me tell you, it's a nothing burger. Right. Because, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, and this is over, I think, a five or seven year period. So the first year will only be the laughable $500 million, which is, I mean, you're, you're talking about one 
you know, less than two percent of of the uh, of, of of the expenditures. Mm-hmm. Um, and in any case, um, you know, they upped the expenditures, and now they're mm-hmm. going to reduce the, the the increase by a bit. Right. That's not really yeah. no. That's... Uh, Dealing with, I mean, it's it's sort of a a sleight of a sleight of hand. Sounds like a head fake, Joe. Um, It it is. (laughs) So so just to also reflect on a on a related topic, we were talking about um, um, uh, environmental policy. Is the whole area of ESG? You've written about it, uh, environmental social governance. It's been um, quite an interesting movement. Um, a lot of different actors have really promoted ESG, like Larry Fink and company at, at BlackRock. And, and it's even infected, like this is an index where they basically take these woke causes and put them into an index. And some companies have adopted them, even uh, banks, uh, credit unions, um, pension funds. Uh, the, the good example I give is the one with the the Canadian pension plan using kind of an, I understand, an ESG index to choose, and I'm, I'm sure you noticed this right away, Joe, is they chose Russian oil and gas to invest in over Canadian oil and gas. I mean, you can't make this up. It's, it's unbelievable. So as you look at this ESG movement, and there's been a lot of pushback, a lot of U.S. states are banning ESG indexes because who are you as a company to start inserting all these other kind of woke values when you should be getting maximum returns to me as an investor? So my question is this. So do you think that movement is kind of peaking and backing off? I know that Vanguard, I think, is backing away from ESG. It's hard to know what they're doing exactly, but how, what's your read on that? Funds that have said they're going to focus on green investing have done very poorly. So it's so under, undermined it. And um, I mean, essentially, this ESG movement has a certain appeal. You say, well, you know, let's, let's take into account some, some things which are good for mm-hmm. society and are moral and, and so on. But this is not the role of, of business. Mm-hmm. The role of businesses should, should be to be profitable for their, their shareholders, uh, which is good for their employees and good for society. And good for their bottom line, on which they have to pay taxes. Right. So it's it's good for for economic growth. Well, and and but, follow the law. It's not like they're going out investing in companies that are irresponsible, right? right? So, yeah. So do you think it's more of a fad? Are they greenwashing? Well, yeah, they are doing some greenwashing for sure. Whether it's a fad or not, I don't know. It's because so many people have bought into it, and in mm-hmm. Canada, I mean, if you stand against ESG, you're you're, you're standing alone. And, uh, you know, pe- people like Mark Carney, uh, you know, are, are, are trumpeting uh, ESG uh, on, on, the, on the other side. And, and, you know, what's disappointing is how, how all the companies initially came on side. Now they don't have a choice mm-hmm. because it's prescribed by regulators, by governments, and by their overseers. Yeah. But again, this is an opportunity where, as Canadians, you need to speak up. And I know that at the retail level, there's increasing questions being asked because, hey, you should be serving me and my my returns, not just some woke agenda. So I think that's an interesting one that we'll uh, continue to monitor in Canada. Right. Um, so I did want to ask you a little bit about the whole issue of um, 
some of the international relationships that are occurring here in Canada. It's almost like a perfect storm. And just to step back for a moment, in Canada, we, you know, we, we're relating to many larger powers, obviously the, the preeminent superpowers, the United States, and then of course we have China as, a, as the other superpower. And then we have the emerging superpower, namely India. And I don't think I've ever seen in our history a moment where Canada has been really under very stressed, bad relationships with not only China as a superpower, but the emerging one, namely India. And I know it's complex, but what the heck is going on with Canadian foreign relations here when we are being adept at ticking off both a superpower and an emerging superpower? How do you do that? Well... Um, I think there's there's an acknowledgement, including um, in in global affairs, uh, that that Canada uh, is has lost ground uh, internationally, uh, and and part of the reason for that is that we've, we 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 keep virtue signaling and irritating uh, countries uh, with our moral posturing uh, that they're not impressed uh, particularly with, um, and uh, we're we're. Uh, we don't follow it up with any robust um, uh, donations or an ability to to uh, uh, to he help our allies uh, who we have an obligation to uh, um, you know to spend uh, two percent NATO of our of our GDP on on the military and, and and the prime minister actually said it's never going to happen. I mean that that was kind of astonishing. So why would they care? Uh, about, about Canada, because we're, we're just we're saying we're, we're pounding our chest and saying how great we are, uh, but we're not delivering. Well, who cares what you mm -hmm. think? You know, it's you know we're, we're we're harming ourselves. We're sort of bemused by that, and and, and our our energy competitors are happy with it. Uh, they're laughing all the way to the mm -hmm. bank, uh, but but our other allies are, are irritated that we're pretending to be superior and we're not. We're free riders. And uh, th this is not this is not a way to 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 make friends and influence people. So, Joe, um, you have spent uh, years in the House of Commons. Uh, you've seen many guests uh, come into the House of Commons. Um, we know that they're all vetted. Um, how did the gentleman who was uh, uh, part of uh, an SS unit in the Ukraine get into the House of Commons? Is there an easy answer to that? I, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of puzzling. Um, the speaker, uh, you know, was, was, was thrown under the bus and, and he did have to resign because he made a, a, a terrible error in, in, um, in, in honoring uh, this individual without uh, checking him out. Mm -hmm. um, I think he realized halfway through the presentation to see him pause when he said, this is a great hero, uh, and, uh, you know, he fought uh, against uh, the, the, the Russians. Well, wait a minute. Uh, the, the Russians Russia. were our allies during exactly. the Second World War. If he was fighting against the Russians, he had to be on the side of the Germans. Yeah, uh, wow. That's not good. And then it turned out he was in the SS. Yeah. Um, so, but to, to answer your question, look, you just don't let anyone walk in to a reception that the prime minister is is giving, mm -hmm. and I, I assume there was something like that. Um, but in any at the at the minimum, he was coming into the House of Commons. Uh, so I, there had to be some there had to be some other check. And so the question is, why did he get in? 
uh, you know, when the most elementary kind of uh, check would have, uh, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know how it happened. It seems like a, a combination of, of incompetence and uh, uh, negligence. Uh, it's it's very it's very very bad because we're a laughing stock and. You know the, the 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 person most hurt by it, of course, is Zelensky, uh, because um, he is fighting this 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 false propaganda uh, from uh, from the uh, from Russia uh, that they're in there to denazify uh, the country, and then he he stands up and applauds uh, an old Nazi. I mean, what could be worse? So stay tuned on that one. I guess the other one that uh, we'll stay tuned in terms of the political scene is really the long overdue inquiry into the level of Chinese interference, specifically from the Communist Party of Canada in, um, in elections in Canada. That certainly uh, there's lots of evidence pointing in that direction. And do, do you have any uh, hopes coming out of that uh, public inquiry, Joe? Well, there's, there's, if, if it's done in anything like a, a competent way, and now, of course, it's going to include India as well. Um, the, it, the the facts on the ground, I think, are pretty bloody compelling. I mean, you've got you've got Chinese police stations. You've got you, you've got a, an attempt. Uh, so you're uh, saying there's there's Chinese police police stations still operating in Canada? Well, the, the, it hasn't been totally. They said they were dealing with it, but yeah. but I haven't heard anybody say that they've all gone mm -hmm. so yeah it, it's, it's if they've all gone that. they would have said it exactly and, yeah you know and and there's there's definitely pressure on the chinese canadian community to to mm -hmm. toe the line mm -hmm. and and chinese students who, who come here and also the chinese language press uh you know all the these these groups and organizations are, are subject to a lot of uh, Chinese pressure to toe the line. And these uh, don't play nice. Yeah, so this is a reality, again, that we really need to get to the facts and the evidence, because this is a very important matter to safeguard our Canadian democracy, period. Absolutely. So, yes. and, and, we've been, and this government has been very weak. You know, the Prime Minister has, has a sort of a strange uh, affection. He said this is, you know, their basic dictatorship is is what they admire, uh, he admires most. Well, you know, maybe he has a whole Oedipal thing going, or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, his father and all this sort of stuff, but because uh, his father was was, uh, was a great lover of, of China and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Cuba. Um, yeah. But, you know, this, this, is, this is a serious, serious it business. It really is and serious. Re the reaction to, to the Chinese outrages uh, is so muted uh, compared to his reaction uh, to to India's uh, potential involvement in, in the murder of a Canadian citizen, which mm -hmm. I do not condone, yeah. but the, but the reaction uh, to, to to those two, uh, uh, you know, one was a whole series of events, and uh, and the other was was one event, and uh, you know, it's just uh, it's just an amazing uh, contrast, and 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 not a not an attractive and, and reassuring one. I have to say that indeed. So as we kind of uh, come to the close of our discussion, uh, Joe, one of the things that I did want to highlight was you had a very eloquent recent column um, about Canada 
And our tradition and emphasis on a respect for freedoms of individual rights and freedoms for really out of that Anglo-Saxon tradition, uh, the rule of law among so many other very important agreements about how we live together peacefully in, in, a, in a high functioning way as a society. Can you tell us more about the importance of those, um, that culture to enabling Canada to go forward and, and the importance that political leadership safeguard those cultures so that we can continue to have not only a, a peaceful society, but a prosperous society that serves the next generation? Look, this, this relates to who we are in Canadian values. And uh, we, we have, uh, we, we honor uh, democracy, uh, freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of, 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 of religion, freedom of assembly, and uh, equal treatment uh, under the law. And our political leaders should be working to strengthen those values and unify the country. Unfortunately, this leader, our, our current prime minister, and some of the, the woke uh, madness that, that's affecting a lot of countries in the West is, is divisive and is undermining that. I mean, the, the critical race theories uh, and, and other neo-Marxist um, ideologies are, are pitting groups against each other. Uh, they're good guys and bad guys. Uh, you know, they're, they're people who are born guilty because of their race. Mm -hmm. and others were born victims uh, because of their race. And what so a horrible in the thought. case, they're irredeemably guilty and evil. And in the other case, they're irredeemably failures. Well, that's not, that, that's not a healthy society. That's not a country that's, that's going to grow and prosper in peace and harmony. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm afraid that, that some of the, the political philosophy um, and the... the the partisan divisiveness, because it isn't only ideology, it's mm -hmm. narrow partisan, uh, an attempt to create advantage, um, is really uh, is, is driving a wedge. And it's also driving, you know, the, the climate policies have driven a wedge geographically as, as well, uh, to, to and that's undermined national unity and mm -hmm. exacerbated uh, regional tensions. So we've gone pretty far in, in, in away from the concept of being the peaceable kingdom uh, that uh, that Canada wants to be and and, and honors uh, um, you know order and, and good government and uh, I, 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 I worry about that because that's that's culture and culture is is hard is hard to change but uh, change it we, we must indeed and well said. Uh... The Honorable Joe Oliver, the former Minister of Natural Resources and the former Minister of Finance at the federal level, we want to thank you for joining us and thank you for your challenge to be involved as citizens to safeguard our culture and our democracy. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. 
comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.